The following podcast contains explicit language. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent Green is people! Need my sister and my daughter! Rosebud. What's in the box? And like that, he's gone. Hello and welcome to another Slate Spoiler Special. I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and today we will be spoiling A Wrinkle in Time, Ava DuVernay's new adaptation of the beloved Madeline Lingle novel. Here to talk with me about the movie are Slate culture writer and the host of the Represent podcast, Aisha Harris. Hello, Dana. Hi, Aisha. Thanks for coming in. And our culture editor, Forrest Whitman. Hey, Forrest. Hey, Dana. So I believe we all saw A Wrinkle in Time at the same screening, although I didn't see you guys there a couple nights ago, right? I think so. I saw a few of us scattered about, including like Julia and the Culture Fest crew. Yeah, I think every every Slatester who could get in there wanted to go because yeah. this was this was kind of a hot ticket of the year. So before we start spoiling, let me just go around. Aisha, I know what you think because you reviewed the movie, but tell our listeners just a quick thumbnail recap, pro or con. Uh my my thumb is in the middle. <laughs> um, I I thought there were some really uh, moving moments. I think in the review I mentioned that uh, she Ava DuVernay knows how to make your eyes well up, and I definitely actually started crying at one point. And we can talk about that. Yeah, later. I want to know yeah. what point it was. I only cried once. Too. Yes, uh, but but then there were also just it. It also just was kind of messy and really not. I was not the target audience for this movie, and I could not tap into my inner. 12 year old. So, yeah, we need to talk about that. Who is and what kids, if any, would be drawn to this movie, too? And Forrest, what about you? Um, there's a line in this movie where they say aberrations are far, far more interesting. Uh, and I feel like that is one of the nicer things I could say about this movie. I think it's kind of an interesting failure. There's so much good stuff in it, both in terms of it's like, um, extremely progressive and in many ways groundbreaking intentions and achievements and uh, achievements in terms of representation and also just like the imagery is frequently stunning and yet i just feel felt like it didn't really cohere yeah i have to say yeah i was i think for me this is a big disappointment of the year so far it was only early march so there could be more to come but i guess because our expectations were high and it's an unusual combination of creator and project and this book except for i think an animated adaptation decades ago has never been adapted for the screen so there was a tv movie in 2003 is that the animated thing i'm thinking no this was a live action one um i didn't know about an animated version but yeah there was a tv movie that most people have forgotten i think it was also disney from 2000 2003 that was deemed to be like a not a good adaptation yeah and and there's speculation that it's kind of an unfilmable book having just reread the book i can kind of see where that comes from because just before we get into the movie just a quick note on the book is just that it's extremely conceptual it's you know it really is kind of speculative sci-fi for kids so it has lots of idea-based scenes in it, you know, things like what would it be like to be two-dimensional on a two-dimensional planet or how do you explain light to a creature that's never seen light? And those are kind of, for a kid, those are really mind-blowing kind of ideas to explore, but they're obviously hard to get across on screen. And in fact, the way that DuVernay solves most of those problems and the two screenwriters, Jennifer Lee and Jeff Stockwell, solve that problem is just to cut those, those more kind of speculative scenes. Yeah, some of those scenes are so wild. Like there's a scene, one of the better scenes in this, I think, is when um, we learn that there are these flowers that, quote, speak in color. And there are so many really abstract, conceptual, like, whoa, man, how do you explain light to a child or whatever you just said? Dana, that I actually Googled to figure out whether this book was written before LSD. 
And it was. <laughs> but it is definitely trippy. And the well, movie, if, if nothing else, does try to capture some of that trippiness. I think what it, it, it may capture the weirdness of the trippiness, the aberration right. quality, like you say, but it doesn't necessarily capture the sense of insight, right? That mm-hmm. sense of epiphany yeah. or insight that you associate with kind of like, you know, stoner conversations. All right, but let's get into our own stoner conversation and just set up how this movie starts, which actually is quite similar to the book um, with some important differences. So as we begin, we are we seem to be in maybe Southern California, right, or some kind of setting. We're in the present day and we're getting to know the Murray family. So let's set up who they all are. Well, I guess, it, well, I should preface this by saying that I have not read, I've only read the book once. I think I was in sixth grade, so that would have made it almost two decades ago since I've read it. So this is all very new to me. But I do know that in the book, um, Meg had at least three or four siblings. Well, I, there's it, a pair of twins that are cut out. There's she a pair has, of twins. Yeah. Is that, that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. there are no twins. It's just Meg and the, the movie opens with uh, a very young Meg. So not Storm Reed, who plays the uh, 14 year old or 14, 15 year old Meg, but a very young Meg in their family's laboratory, sort of. And her, her she's... Having, she's bonding basically with her father, Chris Chris Pine, playing Alex Murray. They bond over the science experiment, and then we also see her mother come in, Kate, who is played by Gugu Mbatha-Ra, and they have this touching family moment where they give her like the uh, what do you what do you call this? Yeah, those it's things? like a paper fortune teller. It's yeah. like that little claw thing that kids use, and then they it's origami, and then they fold it out to tell your fortune. Right, and I, guess, guess different things that are written on right. each. Right. And right. then we get this kind of big theme, which is they they tell the young, um, the young Meg that their love is not gone; it's just enfolded because which, the heart is on the paper thing, and then it disappears. Right, they're like. able to sort of make it appear and disappear and appear and disappear. Which, like, why are they supposed to be telling that to Meg? Is it just because I think I only figured out one plausible explanation later, which is um, this is around the time that her new little brother is on the way. And so are they just like setting her up for the fact that they will still love her, even though they appear to only love the younger kid? I wondered about that too. It just seems like a really random thing, like, and sort of awful thing. Like we, (laughs) you might think we don't love you anymore, (laughs) but we're just not showing it outwardly. Well, then I wondered if it was just that, like, did Alex know maybe that he might be disappearing for a while? And like, that's why he's saying this. I don't know. But but they do hint that she's getting a new or they say like your brother's coming soon in that same scene. Right. Um, and her brother's adopted, right? Yeah. They established okay. that as well. Her All little right. brother, Charles Wallace, is adopted. Um, Who they always refer to as Charles, Charles Wallace, Wallace. <laughs> which is another one of the sort of weird. And inexpl- I assume that's from the book, right? Yeah, that's his name in the book. Although in the book, he's sometimes called Charles as well. And in the movie, he, he never is. Only Charles. He's Wallace. only Charles Wallace <laughs> in the movie, which can get like pretty awkward and clunky when you have to start every sentence with like Charles Wallace, comma. <laughs> Charles Wallace, um, no. But it, but, <laughs> right, right. But, it, but it goes with the strange formality of his character, which is completely yeah. different from in the book. He's not described as being this kind of little preppy who walks around in, in sweater vests. <laughs> he reminded me of what's his name from Modern Family. Um, the uh, what's her, so- Sophia Vergara's son in the show, who's very like prim and proper and kind of nerdy but like smart, like wise beyond his years. Right. Manny. Uh, Manny. That's what he reminds me of. I assume that the reason that they always refer to him as Charles Wallace is because it sounds like a very adult name and so underlines how precocious he is but his character i just found kind of baffling in general <laughs> oh yeah yeah character. let's get into charles wallace who's introduced in the very next scene where we cut 
forward by three years. Right. Um, her father four has, years, has yeah. dis- four years, sorry, and her father has disappeared down a wrinkle in time, which we'll get to what that is. And uh, and so the family has been left with the single mom raising them, and uh, and she goes down to the kitchen late at night because she can't sleep in a storm. Uh, the first line of the book is it was a dark and stormy night, by the way, which is a great like it's, just, it's a great yeah. challenging way to begin your novel. Like I'm going to write a novel with this first sentence and make it really original anyway. Um, so she goes down, meets Charles Wallace, and talk a little and, bit about Charles Wallace, the the super precocious kid. I mean, even on paper, he's a little bit hard to take, but within the kind of conceptual world of the book, and also the, because of the fact it was written in 1962, when maybe you know the idea of precocious childhood had not been as tapped out, he was a little right. more bearable. Yeah, I think the cliche problem, which Aisha, you talked a little bit about in your review, um, just comparing it to sort of other demon child uh, movies and stories, which is something we'll get to later. Um, But I think that the the cliche thing is a little bit of a problem. Um, Yeah, Charles Wallace, like how old is he supposed to be? I don't know. I mean, in real life, he's nine. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I, I Googled it. I was like, how old is this kid? Yeah, I think the actor, whose name is Derek McCabe, was eight when he played the part. In right. the book, he's supposed to be five, which would really be ridiculous. Oof, yeah. He seems more like he's supposed to be about eight. Right. Well, and the fact that he's adopted and it's been four years means that you don't... I could, if her, I, I don't know if I was got the adopted detail for sure. So I think it I really was wondering, like, by. is he supposed to be four or five? Anyway, um, and unlike Storm Reed, who I think really does a great job with the character, even when the character is a little bit weakly written or underwritten, she's she's really yeah. excellent. Um, but this other kid, I hate to be mean to a kid actor, but he just he does not. He's he's grading. He just does not sell. Yeah. That I'm glad I'm not the only thing. one. Well, but <laughs> I was like this. I already don't like child actors generally. Uh, <laughs> well, there's a line in your review, Aisha, when you're like. The cast is mostly outstanding, and I was like, I bet she's talking about Charles. Well, I Wallace, meant Charles but You don't Wallace. want to come out. Yeah, I meant Charles Wallace and uh, the Ansel Elgort lookalike, who also is saddled with just really oh. terrible dialogue and is just there to be pretty. But um, I loved that character, but we can get to that later. <laughs> Um, yeah, I couldn't figure out whether it was his fault or just the like the movie's fault. I think the movie is asking a lot of that young actor to play this character who at first, so as we see in that Dark and Stormy Night scene, like she's made, uh, or I'm sorry, he's made his sister like warm milk and we are not necessarily entirely sure why because it's because of the storm. But then we also learn via Michelle Norris on NPR radio Um that it's because it's exactly the four-year anniversary of the father's uh, disappearance. And so he is super supportive. And the next day when Meg gets bullied and the kid is absurdly mean and is like, happy anniversary, I see why your dad left or something like There's that, something which is really an unbelievably mean line, I think. It's also just not psychologically realistic that kids would tease each other on a playground about your father disappearing into yeah. time space or whatever. I mean, you could easily find something else she could be bullied about. Well, I mean, I, part of the problem, though, is a classic movie problem that's not even this movie. I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to talk over you. But she's just, she's too beautiful and too together, right? I mean, Meg Murray is supposed to be a little bit of a, a mess. At least they could have slapped some braces on her or something. I mean, she's just a, a, a pretty girl with cute clothes who seems like she would fit in fine. And I don't quite understand why she's this misfit that the movie's purporting that she is. Well, they seem to imply that well, the way that playground scene kicks off uh, when uh, she eventually th- throws the ball straight at the bully's face on the playground uh, is that Charles Wallace overhears two teachers talking about how like their family has gotten weird or they've like Meg is is now no longer the pro- the promising kid she used to be, and he he's he starts yelling at the the teachers and then 
runs over to her on the playground. And he's like, don't listen to them. Like, you have more <laughs> talent in your pinky than she has in her whole body. And, and, and then that, like, kicks off the other girl on the playground saying this is, like, making fun of her. So it was like, it wasn't, it didn't just come out of the blue. But, and, and that, that leads into the other problem with Charles Wallace is, is just he's so unbelievable. He's so unbelievable in yeah. a way. I don't know any kid. I don't know. He is that. He's that kid from all those movies who's just like two. He knows he's a, a an adult. Clearly wrote these lines, right? Like, I, yeah. and I think that that problem exists a little bit for Meg too, where you know Charles Wallace early on, as you say, is like telling her how amazing and talented she is. We don't totally see why i don't think until all of the sudden towards the end of the movie she does this absurdly elaborate physics calculation in her head that like i don't think any actual like i don't think einstein could do um <laughs> while well, a giant tornado is, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> is threatening to whistle and it comes a little bit out of nowhere i i think i did get why she's insecure though like she wears glass she's not like conventionally by the standards of uh mainstream 21st century white society conventionally attractive right like she wears glasses she dresses uh like not super femme and and she has curly hair and we see later in the movie the version of her that either she or the it which is a dark force we'll get to later uh uh like uh produces as the version of herself that everyone would like and it's like somebody with straight hair and no glasses and dresses very femme. Um, and so I, that that I kind of got, even I guess, though I agree. I, guess like, I can see that. But the group that rejects her is multiracial, right? right. I mean, it's, it's it's not because she's not conforming to the, to the standard of whiteness that she's rejected. Exactly. But there yeah. is this ongoing thing about her hair, which I want to get to also because Calvin is strangely fawning over it at several different <laughs> points during the movie. Calvin just kind of comes out of nowhere. <laughs> so Calvin, we got to establish him. So this is the threesome, yeah. the threesome of kids that will go traveling through wrinkles in time. Meg Murray, her little brother, Charles Wallace, the psychic genius who understands understands and knows all and uh and calvin who is somebody that they meet all of a sudden in the street because he isn't doesn't he just say i felt a need to come to this place right, right. and then and then charles wallace is like i sent you here because you are good at diplomacy <laughs> like, this is such a bizarre bizarre movie well that <laughs> I, that actually does come straight from the book as well which is that it's kind of implied that charles wallace and calvin share some kind of mind melding psychic talents that don't really get developed until they start traveling Whoa. through time I did and not space. Get that at all from yeah, no, does the movie doesn't establish movie. that at all. The movie does a terrible job of establishing Calvin, who I love in the book. He's a great character, but you were saying that you like Calvin in the <laughs> well, movie, so, so talk yeah, about why. It's, it's, <laughs> it's precisely the fact that he is so absurdly underdeveloped and is just there to like gaze lovingly with his perfect blonde hair and blue eyes at at meg and like there's this qu quote I, I i love this before i read this quote but i found later um ava duvernay is thinking for the character which is that she says she wanted to cast um levi miller this young like very handsome young boy because that was so powerful to show a white boy following a black girl through the movie. Like, it's just fun. It kind of reminds me of uh, Chris Pine in Wonder Woman, where he's just there to be the male damsel in distress and look pretty. And uh, I, it's just like a fun trend, I think, in the movies. And it's refreshing, even if his character is completely like bland. 
But there's but there's something, again, just psychologically unrealistic about the amount of compliments that people are always showering on Meg. Like, yeah. I don't know why she has low self-esteem since everyone in her life seems to be building her up at every single <laughs> everyone, second. Everyone does. Uh, I mean, the the other I, I can understand. Look, if I was when I was 11, 12, 13, whatever, I totally would have loved seeing this white boy following this black girl. It, it was it's I remember watching Boy Meets World. And when Angela came on the show in like the later seasons and started dating Sean Hunter, I was like, what? This is amazing. And, and it, it it made me happy to see that. But as 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 a function of the actual plot of the story, he has, I think, Besides Charles Wallace, I think he has the clunkiest lines. Uh, he and the fact Do that you have he, any idea how incredible you are, Aisha. <laughs> <laughs> and he just—he literally is just okay. I'm going to go on this adventure after having met them that day. This all takes place in the in the all span right. of like a day. It's just weird. I mean, I guess we should probably talk about the witches. Yeah. So right? now, yeah, we have to get them into space. We haven't even gotten them into space yet. <laughs> so, so much plot. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So so the way this first gets set up, the first of the three witches, I mean, I think of them as three witches anyway, the three misses, as they call them, that they meet is Mrs. What's It, who is played by Reese Witherspoon and who appears, I believe, just suddenly she, on the dark and stormy night. She just suddenly appears knocking at the door of their house. Right. I, I think it's later that day. It's the night after, I think. After she's gotten um, after Meg has gotten kicked out of or like scolded for by the principal, she comes home. Who's played then, by Andre Holland, who is a great actor, who totally underutilized. Yeah. Um, but yes, it's it's later that day, and then she's like arguing with her mom about the what happened at school, and she says, she says, you know, Dad would have told me to stick up for myself, and her mom says, well, you can't use your father against me, and then all of a sudden, Reese Witherspoon as Mrs. What's It is downstairs with Charles, Mur- Charles and here, Wallace. Here is a place where the the kind of realistic world that's set up in the first couple minutes of the movie and then the completely trippy magical space traveling world that is going to take up the rest of the movie kind of grind against each other really awkwardly because of course what you would really do if Reese Witherspoon with long red braids and wearing a sheet came into your house and just introduced herself and plonked herself down is call the cops or (laughs) try to figure out why you're being kind of home invaded by a weirdo. But they are all really accepting of this whimsical figure who comes in and introduces herself as Mrs. What's It? Yeah, there was a real opportunity for sort of classic fish out of water comedy there that they just didn't quite capitalize They miss it even more with Oprah. We'll get there. But there could have been so much good comedy. It was a little bit in there, I think. But it was like a little hard to tell whether to what extent it was intentional, I think. Think. Anyway, so yeah, we should go through the three the three misses. But There's let me just say the one actionable uh-huh. item that they that Mrs. What's it leaves them with on this brief first visit, which is that she says, um, yes, yes, I'll be on my way after they've chatted for a while, and she says, but just remember there is such a thing as a tesseract. And when she says that, the mother, Mrs. Murray, kind of 
jumps because Tesseract was the precise scientific concept that she and her husband were exploring and that eventually caused him to disappear. Okay, so let's get to the other two witches. Who comes next? Um, Mrs. Who, who is played by Mindy Kaling. And so each of them kind of gets precisely one personality trait. Mrs. Who's is is probably the most obvious where um, her trait is that she can only speak in famous quotations. So she uh, like offers a line from Rumi. A lot of them are kind of new agey at first and then progressively she says something like get out you know get, get out, up get, get out get going or whatever the outcast line is and she's just like outcast and then there's uh, a line from hamilton later which i was oddly moved by yeah uh, there's also a chris, chris tucker line of, right. all, of all things <laughs> which is very random and and i think only ava duvernay would think to put that well i'm assuming I, she thought to put that in who knows who put that well in. And it was and, super short right it was something it was dang, dang. <laughs> It was basically a rush. It was, it was a, oh, I was going to say rush hour, but it was more more likely a, what do you call it, Friday quote, but yes. Yeah. And that also, that actually is another gesture of representation on DuVernay's part, because in the book as well, Mrs. Who can only speak in quotations, although it's presented more as a limitation in the book, sort of like, I can't express myself in human language, so I'm just borrowing bits of language from here and there. She also says them in the original language in the book and then translates them. And of course, there are, it being a book from 1962, almost all from sort of canonical sources like Dante, Shakespeare, Pascal, etc. Right. So they're so, all white men, basically. Right. And so uh, there are a couple women in there, I think. But yeah, Eva DuVernay is trying to mix it up by throwing in more modern and diverse voices. I mean, we can get to whether, I mean, to me, toward the end, those quotes started, I just, they became so cloying that I couldn't stand it anymore. They just, as you say, all seemed to to be expressing the same kind of most of them, but the exception of maybe Dang, seem to be expressing the same sort of vacuous self-help affirmations. Yeah. I mean, there are just so this movie has what precisely one theme, which is just like love yourself. It's self-help. It's a self-help book. Yeah. (laughs) Or a movie self-help movie. Yes. And like self-love is like a superpower, which is, you know, a nice theme, but they just like, hit it so hard saying it over and over again like at least the Mindy Kaling character uh, finds you know finds ways to express it through these quotes whereas most of the time they're just saying it outright over and over again I will say I did also like Reese Witherspoon's sort of very spunky uh, take on Mrs. What's It and and the fact that yes you had Oprah being the she was the the Oprah she was being Oprah she was (laughs) Oprah like times a hundred thousand uh, but we also had Mrs. What's It, who was using, she was kind of grinding against that and kept telling Charles Wallace, like, I, you know, I'm very, dis- I'm underwhelmed. I'm disappointed. Why isn't she, why isn't she everything you say that she is? And in this way, I feel it reminded me of those sort of adults who, who won't give you straight out, say, like, you're, you're great. They'll just kind of prod you in that direction to make you see that by undercutting you. And I, I liked that. Yeah, Miss, I, Mrs. Watson is my favorite of the misses. She makes the most sense and seems the most like a real character. She's nothing like the character from the book, and she doesn't have any particular history or development. None of them do, which is a real flaw. But at least she is something besides a, a quote, affirmation machine. And she has a crush on Zach Galifianakis's character. Oh, yeah. We've got to get, we've got to, get to that very, very strange scene. Um, but so we, let's just get to Mrs. Mrs. Witch, who is, of course, Oprah Winfrey. She's the last of the three to appear. And it's sort of implied that because she's the most powerful, because she's the most uh, kind of immaterial, that it's harder for her to materialize than the others. In fact, in the book, she's just a shimmer. You never see Mrs. Witch. But of course, that would be kind of unfilmable. So what about the first appearance of, of Oprah as Mrs. Witch? I don't know. Annihilation filmed a shimmer somehow. So. 
I have to say, Dana, when you said that, I just heard the annihilation noise in my head. <laughs> I was like, I hope Dana's not going to ask me the next question because I'm not prepared. Um, yeah. Oprah. It plays. So there's. Um, That's the name of this. Spoiler I spoiler. can never the name of of which miss she is because I just think Witch. of her as Oprah. Yeah. Mrs. Witch. It is deliberately confusing, I suppose. Um, and it, it this is a role that kind of plays on Oprah's, uh, as you said in your review, Aisha, like life coach personality. It, it, you know, given how self-helpy this movie is, it makes sense that um, Oprah is in there. And I do think that the movie maybe tries, tries to play with the comedy of having Oprah in this role a little bit. There's this moment where, so Oprah, Mrs. Witch can change sizes very dramatically. And there's this moment where she is like as large as the Statue of Liberty. And they just like brush her cheek in <laughs> awe for a second. <laughs> yeah. And like, who 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 among us would not like to brush <laughs> Oprah's cheek in awe? Yeah, that's that made me think. What if she does run for president? That could be used in one of her campaign ads, <laughs> like a huge shot of her face with bedazzled eyebrows. Because we didn't mention that when every time you yeah. see her, she's got sort of like Swarovski crystals glued across her brows, there and was uh, a- and this tiny little hand coming up to touch her. And then underneath that, it could say Oprah twenty twenty. <laughs> her her outfits. I mean, all of the outfits are uh, of the three witches i think are pretty amazing like the costumes in this movie in general i think are wonderful yeah. um I, there's a great, oh, a great i think they're too over the top but anyway i mean it's, uh, in some scenes I they're mean, great but sometimes they just seem like a jumble of color for the sake of crazy color and i didn't know what they were saying about the character yeah right we can get to that i suspect there's maybe i think i maybe know what scene you're talking about um there's a, a quote. This is from the same Melina Rizek New York Times piece that I quoted from earlier. But Oprah described uh, her look in this movie as, quote, Beyonce's aunt from another planet, <laughs> which is a pretty wonderful description. Aww. I'm just picturing Mama Tina creating those costumes for her, for her wrinkle in time. So once the three ladies have all gotten together and issued their various axiomatic bromides from Rumi to the kids, it's time to go into outer space. And remind me of what the very first um, space wrinkle they make is. They go to Uriel, the planet. Oh, right. Which is the like very kind of sound of music, the hills are alive one, where they basically just like run around through green fields and I, flowers. I have to say that I was least impressed by those visual effects. It looked way too CGI green screeny. It's sort of odd. It's a hundred million dollar movie, and a lot of the green screen was very obvious green screen. I, I had flashbacks to the Great and Powerful Oz, that movie with James Franco yeah. from a few yeah. years ago, which also was just overly, overly. CGI really bad and you can see like the outline of their bodies you know they're not actually there I I was I was not a fan I I I wanted to to like I wanted to bask in the glorious beautiful colors because it's very lush and vivid but it just falls flat yeah, one critic described that land as sort of looking like where the Teletubbies live. <laughs> and that is sort of how it feels. That's very good. Yeah, yeah. And yet the children, again, this seems just not psychologically motivated. Like they've just had this terrifying wrinkling through time and space and ended up on another planet with these three witches. And the the witches say, oh, go ahead, enjoy the 
the hills or whatever. And suddenly they're prancing around, running, like having fun. Just it didn't the whole thing didn't make like any psychological sense. But we've got to get to the transformation of Mrs. Yes. Okay, so um, here is something I'm going to show you guys the cover to the book right now. I brought in my childhood copy of Wrinkle in Time. So that is basically what Mrs. What's It transforms into in the book, which is this sort of like bald marble centaur creature. yeah. Yeah. Who's described as being this very kind of serene, smooth, mysterious creature that speaks in this voice that sounds like trumpets and the three kids climb onto this marble centaur and it flies them to the place that they need to go now i'm not saying that the movie needs to stick with what the book does it's totally fine that ava duvernay reimagines it don't you insult the flying but, kale <laughs> Dana. but, but what she transforms step into away from the flying kale <laughs> all right you take the flying kale what does reese transform into <laughs> Uh, I believe I just said a flying kale. Um, she's just this flying lettuce leaf. And it's so, <laughs> it's so wonderful. I, I, but it's it just still like, has unlike, the chin of Reese Witherspoon. Just, right, right, right. Uh, yeah, her face looks vaguely like Reese Witherspoon, although not so not so much that like before when I saw the trailer, I just became obsessed with this character <laughs> who in my head was just flying lettuce guy um, and couldn't wait to find out. And, and so I, I, I apologize to flying lettuce uh, woman for misgendering her. Um, but yeah, and it's just like, ha- have you ever seen anything like that before? No. Whereas I've seen a million flying centaurs. Come <laughs> I on, I feel Dana. like I have seen it. Lo- I don't remember what it was, but it, 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 it just looked like it kind of reminded me of the heart of Tafiti, uh, or Tafiti from Moana, the giant green woman. Oh. I feel like if, in, in Moana, it makes complete sense why she's a plant woman, right? right. It's all about the regeneration of life. But yes. I'm not quite sure why they need to climb on an endive to fly to their next location. <laughs> and, then, and then they don't even wind up making it. They 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 run into the, what was that thing, Kamas, Kamazats? Like the giant right. black hole, essentially, cuts them off. So they have this adventure for maybe a minute, and then they're they're having fun, and then it, it abruptly ends, and it's, but, she's not a lettuce anymore. Dana, you're <laughs> saying it doesn't make sense. A, that's exactly why it's so wonderful. And B, like, how does a flying centaur make any more sense? <laughs> like a horse, if you have the bottom half of a horse, like if you if she grew wings, like the, the bottom half of an eagle or something, that might make sense. But why does she grow the bottom half of a horse and become a man in order to fly? Okay, well, I'm not saying, again, that it has to be as it is in the book. But the transformation of genders, for example, is a really cool moment in the book. I mean, just the idea that yeah. she's not anything. Even when she was Mrs. What's It, she was just taking a human form. That that all three of them, in fact, it comes out later in the book that she used to be a star and she was a dying star who gave her life to fight the it. And there was this whole backstory. But at least it's kind of, I'm not saying at all that it has to be a marble centaur. But that sense to me of kind of majesty and strangeness in the transformation seemed a little bit lost in in the lettuce moment. Anyway, so (laughs) the lettuce leaf, as you say, that whole adventure turns into a crash where Calvin falls to the ground. But the magic flowers save him from being crushed. And then they still have to get to their next location, which I think their next location is, as you say, the planet Camazots. I love that name. Well, no, 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 no. it's the happy medium. Oh, you're right. You're right. Before they go to Camazots, which is the place where the evil is emanating from, uh, they have to be taken down deep into this crystal cave, which I think is on a different planet, Orion, right? I think so, yes. Uh, And to meet this person, the happy medium, who in the book is a a woman kind of with a crystal ball, like very typical, which it's actually great that they gender switched her and made her into Zach Galifianakis, but... With a man bun. (laughs) (laughs) And Zach Galifianakis as as the happy medium is a great piece of casting, but I found that scene incredibly... A, dramatically uncompelling, and B, I'm not even sure what it was supposed to be getting across. So they all descend into this crystal cave where Zach Galifianakis in a man bun and a robe greets them. 
Um, and what knowledge does he impart? Well, he's a seer, most, I think, right? Yeah. Well, so there's a fun, there's a there's a pun in his name, right? Where he is both, as you say, a, a medium, as if with a crystal ball, like somebody who commutes, uh, communicates, communes um, with, you know, spirits from great distances, like a medium does. But also, he's kind of obsessed with balance and compromise. Um, so he insists he, everyone stand in tree pose, for example, to keep their balance on these kind of wobbly crystal rocks. Right. I mean, part of the reason that I so to me, the whole crystal rock thing was pretty underwhelming. Like this is just one of the the less exciting and less imaginative landscapes to me. Um, but I really liked him in this just because he seemed to bring a sort of self-consciousness, a very like straight faced self-consciousness about the ridiculousness of everything that was happening that really worked for me and is the kind of thing that I think they just like they didn't quite nail that balance when like Reese Witherspoon shows up out of nowhere and is the fish out of water anyway they start to try to do some sort of activity but then the real reason that this scene happens is so that Mrs. Witch can like do a big info dump about Mm -hmm. what the it (laughs) is Um, and I can't remember what else she explains about the universe maybe it's just what the it is yeah, I think that's, oh, yeah, it's what the it is and how all the evil is taking over. I think this is also when the montage happens right? where Mrs. Witch is describing how the evil is take, slowly taking over the universe and making and corrupting humans, basically. And so we see all these characters we've already seen. We see the principal, Principal Jenkins, who is played by Andre Holland. We see him in a scene where we actually find out that he's becoming the principal. This is like a flashback, I guess. And then all the other teachers are jealous for some reason. Because yeah. of the it. <laughs> because of the it. And then the the bully from Meg's class, we see her. She's like struggling with body I don't know image why I'm laughing. Issues. But like she, she very dramatically, she's like has this. There's a thing on her wall that says like, don't eat your fat bulimia blah 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 <laughs> i think you're laughing because you. it's not super it, subtle it's, it's not subtle at all it, it reminded me I, I i've made this comparison to something else before but the, it just reminded me of the video for unpretty from tlc where it's just like everything is so dramatic yeah. and body image and and then we also see calvin's that so calvin has daddy issues um they're not like they're not daddy issues of the proportion of the movie it um but they are i guess his his dad is just wants him to be better and he can't handle that right <laughs> so the, they all have issues of self-doubt and the yeah. it we learn is basically like self-doubt and you're supposed to whenever the the it which is this like nebulous dark form is around you're supposed to look away from it and look at the light so it's kind of always look at the it's the, the anti-oprah it's the anti-oprah <laughs> Um, So they so yeah, so they learn about this dark force that's slowly taking over the universe and that that is the thing that has abducted Alex Murray or is somehow somehow keeping him hostage. Now, I think this is a moment when we get to what I consider I'm glad we can spoil here because this to me was the biggest wah in the whole movie is that the misses what's it who and which specifically say, oh, we can't possibly tesser, which is the verb for using the tesseract to travel through space time, right? We can't possibly tesser to Kamazots. It's impossible. And then they immediately do it. It's the very next place they go. Well, they get there, but they like can't move and then they slowly vanish or something. That's like the one time that Mrs. Who is not speaking in quotes just because she tessered and now it's messed up with her body or something. 
It I was, guess, I mean, I guess what they meant by that is we, the three witches, can't go there because for some reason our essences will dissolve, which is what happens when they go there. But they make it sound like, oh, it's impossible. It's against the laws of physics. We can't get to that evil planet that's enveloped by the it. And then seconds later, they're there. And so to me, the fact that no, at least none of the characters asked about that, I don't know. There was just there was a there was a real hole in the logic there. And in general, the world building in this movie leaves a lot to be desired. Yeah, I had I, there's a lot of um sources of confusion for me here so so i think the next thing that happens is this tornado comes at which point i just completely lost track of charles wallace like where did charles wallace go during the tornado Yeah, he he literally disappears for this giant they're in a forest on camisades just after the the witch the the misses have left and so then all of a sudden this tornado starts whipping up the forest and charles wallace is nowhere to be found but they're you know now it's just Meg and Calvin, and they're running. Meg does the physics thing that we already talked about, where she <laughs> calculates that, oh, we have to get over that wall. We have and- the exact amount of thrust <laughs> in order to slingshot. Right, right. If we, if we get into, through that, the tornado. into that wizened stump, we'll be thrown over <laughs> right. the cliff. And so they do that, and then they get in the stump. The, the tornado whisks them away. They land in it. And then somehow Charles Wallace just pops up and is like, hey, guys. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's like never explained where he was, what happened to him. He's he's just the precocious kid who knows everything and just pops up when needed. Nor do they seem particularly surprised. That almost seemed as if a scene had been left on the cutting room floor or something because there was a real hole there. It's as if she's just she's trying to hurry them to to the center of of the action. But to me, it really took me out of the world when that happened, specifically when the the missus said we can't possibly do this. And then they all did it. and No one asked why. Then I just thought, well, I guess we're just not supposed to ask questions. We just passively watch for the rest of the movie. And I think I look away from the darkness, Dana. (laughs) Look towards the light. Well, the the missus was they were also still guiding them somehow. Their voices were still there, at least up until after the tornado. And then they disappeared because they told her they told they told them you have to get over that wall, which is why they were running towards the wall. And it was very ethereal. Like, the wall, you have to go to the wall. <laughs> and then they wound up there and then we don't hear from them again until the, nearly the end of the movie. So I guess that brings them, is that is this where they get, they're at Camazot, so then the they next, go to the suburbs, right? Yeah, the next thing is this very like Stepford wives sequence where they're in these... Um, they're in this, this suburb where all the houses look exactly the same and all of the kids like dribble the ball at <laughs> the same. <laughs> yeah, I thought the sequence was pretty successful. It was very, like, like I said, Stepford Wives or it reminded me of like the early Tim Burton movies where he does all these versions Edward of Scissorhands, yeah. Burbank, like like Edward, Edward Scissorhands, yeah, um, where it's just extreme conformity. So the children all bounce a ball exactly yeah. in time. But the thing is, and this is, this is a really key scene from the book that I feel like every kid who read this book remembers this freaky scene of the children moving in exact unison and then the mother's coming out and calling them in but it served a thematic purpose in the book and i don't see that it does in the movie i mean part of that just has to do with it was written in the mid-20th century you know the idea of a critique of conformity and kind of suburban uniformity made a lot more sense then but i don't think that excuse completely stands because it's it's still in the movie it still stands for something that's menacing i agree the scene has a menacing mood to it that's well established but it doesn't seem to further any 
story or theme at all. Whereas in in the book, it becomes this whole sort of thing about this planet that's been routinized and mechanized because everyone's controlled by the it. And there's a little bit of a geography of that world set up and a, a psychography, I guess, of that world. And here it just seemed like a freaky scene that was in there to establish a freaky mood. Yeah. All of this is making me feel like maybe this should have been a miniseries or something. And maybe then it would be more adaptable uh, because this whole portion of the movie, while it's full of amazing imagery, moves so quickly from one thing to the the next that I'm not really I wasn't really sure what we're supposed to get out of right. each thing and we should probably move to the next thing which is they run from you know one of the Stepford wives who wants to give them sandwiches or something to this beach where again I thought this is this the thing you didn't like the colors at you mean the beach scene where everybody is wearing day glow colors and it right. looks kind of like a I don't even know what like a, a commercial um yeah, I I didn't know what that again was establishing except for this is a freaky planet with some freaky clothes on it. Right. To me that was the point like of Tim the Burton's color Alice like in that's, Wonderland or something. Right. What I got from the color was that it was just like uncannily coordinated and so there was still the sense that even though people did not look quite as conformist and quite as the same as each other as in the previous scene in the suburbs like still there was the sense that something was wrong cuz like all of these people could not have possibly come up with the same color palette for that day. <laughs> so one of the people that emerges from this sea of co- yeah. color-coordinated bathers is Michael Pena as the man with red eyes. Um, he's got these crazy clown colors like the rest of them, and he has, I'm not sure when you first see them he has them, but eventually you see that he has these freaky demonic red eyes. And he seems to be trying to usher them into the the world of the it and to try to get them to... Well, at first he's just trying to get them to eat sandwiches <laughs> but uh, it was clearly like well sorry to to back up a bit but this is the same thing but i saw both of these scenes the beach scene and the suburb sub- suburban scene as it was the its tr- attempt to lure, lure them into you know the into the it right in the same way Again, I'm going to make the comparison again in the same way that it in the movie, the clown, he like attempts to lure kids with like different scenes and different moments and these like weird visualizations. And so I saw the sandwich bit as it was clear he was just trying to bring them in and he picks out Charles Wallace specifically because he knows that Charles Wallace somehow as precocious as he is and as smart as he is, he falls for the 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 bait, which is that his sandwich tastes weird. And then I don't know why it being made of sand, the sandwich being made of sand, uh, suddenly leads him to saying what like one plus one equals two. Two plus two equals four. <laughs> and this. that's how they like and that's how they bond. And and that it, it was really yeah weird. i mean i feel so, like such a pedant saying this over and over again but in the book <laughs> there is there is an actual reason that charles wallace is the most vulnerable to the it and it has to do with his pride and arrogance basically so it's a flaw which we don't get to see charles wallace have any of in in right. the movie and uh, and there's a setup i think it's the the misses that tell them at some point you each have your thing that you have to watch out for and charles wallace has to watch out for his pride right because he's this brilliant kid and he kind of thinks that he's special and that ends up being what kind of seduces him to get zombified and incorporated into the it brain now all that is completely unclear in the movie so i agree with you aisha you have no idea why he would be the one that would be taken and in fact you'd think that he would be the one who would resist the best so it's basically like don't take candy from strangers and uh meg knows that poor 
poor dumb Levi Miller. What is the character's name again? <laughs> Calvin. <laughs> Calvin. He just starts eating that sandwich. He's chowing down. He's enjoying it. But he it. listens to Meg, right? Whereas Charles Wallace doesn't listen, which I guess is his pride. He's just like, no, you're wrong. The sandwich is delicious. It doesn't take like no, sand Calvin, to me. No, he, taste, still, he tastes that it's sand. Calvin's still eating it because it doesn't taste like sand to him. <laughs> because, oh, I, I mixed it up. Yeah, huh. yeah. Calvin's yeah, still yeah, eating it because it doesn't taste like sand. But it does taste like sand to Charles Wallace because I guess the the it knows Ugh. that it, it it's this doesn't make no, sense. No, no, no. It tastes, it tastes like sand to Charles sense. Wallace because Charles Wallace knows what's real because he has because his mind is beyond their minds. But in oh. that, but then in that but, case, but why then, would he be taken in? Right. right then, yeah. yeah. That's why you need the pride and arrogance detail. You need which, i.e., you need some character development and for people to have some flaws and vulnerabilities for their characters to be believable. Um, but so. Long and short of it is that the Charles Wallace is taken in by the it and becomes the demon child that for the first time makes him an interesting character. <laughs> and then somehow they leave the Michael Pena situation and they go inside what David Edelstein in his review described as a giant golf ball. So yeah, they go into me, this I've, featureless uh, space with sort of like dimpled walls. To me, it was like they were inside the Epcot, Epcot Center or yeah, something, which exactly. I guess is kind of the same yeah. image. Um. Yeah, and then the movie becomes what Aisha in a review compared to that episode of The Twilight Zone. I forget the name of it, but where where the kid has superpowers and everyone is just like his slave because yeah. of it. Yeah, his whole family. Um, which would be interesting if that wasn't already a famous episode that hadn't already been spoofed by The Simpsons and so on. Uh, so this bit didn't really work for me either. The demon child. Charles Wallace. Well, how they get out of the spherical ball doesn't really make any sense at all. And it, again, has to do with this sudden positing of Meg's incredible abilities to calculate physics experiments. Yeah, she can, like, see a hidden dimension behind the giant golf ball. And so everything sort of starts looking like a blueprint. Yeah. I mean, it, it looks cool. Again, like, it made for a great trailer, but it was a little unclear to me what exactly was happening. Yeah, I mean, it, I guess it sort of harks back to the self-esteem theme again in that she kind of realizes that she can do it. Like, one of the things that she has is this math ability that allows her to sort of almost, like, create these virtual steps within the golf ball and uh, and ascend those steps to a strange pink hallway. This sounds so cool and trippy when we're describing it. It's the hotline video, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, completely. Complete but with Sade. <laughs> but instead of Drake doing dad dancing, we have actual dad. Right. <laughs> I actually, so this was the part where I cried. Yes. Um, Me too. No, it's a great scene. Because oh, did all three of us cry in this scene? I don't I don't think I cried, but I got choked up. I would say if I cried, I cry all the time in movies. And I think I was the movie had lost me a little too much for me to cry. But man, like Storm Reed in particular is so convincing in this scene. She really is. And, and also Ava DuVernay lets it breathe a little bit. Yeah. Yes, right? Yes. I mean there's a there's a moment where she and Chris Pine come together. He's standing there in this kind of column of light, like he's yeah. kind of imprisoned. And and the moment when they see each other and approach each other, it was strange because, yeah, I was kind of emotionally dead by that point. And yet I came alive and cried during that scene. Maybe I just want to hug Chris Pine. <laughs> that too. Although I also wanted to hug her because I like that was the moment where I, was, I thought to myself, this is a she's a really strong actress or actor. Like it was her face seeing him it felt as though it really felt as though she was seeing him for the first time in four years and when you couple that with the new Sade song <laughs> that is playing over it it's just kind of perfect oh so the shot so i wasn't sure how i felt about the shot like it, i you know i love Sade. like no See, disrespect to Sade, but yeah, yeah. uh then whenever pop songs would appear in this movie i found them very intrusive 
I felt like that with the other songs, which felt it was like a Sia one. It was Sia. Okay, that made sense. There, it's always either Sia or what's her name, Emma Emma Golding. Ellie Golding. Ellie Golding. Like, yeah, in those young adult movies, they always have that. Ugh. But I thought the Sade worked. It felt warm. It 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 felt like it matched what was happening yeah. on screen with the colors that were happening and it worked it worked better than the other ones for sure. Yeah. It didn't feel jarring to me. It, it felt like it worked. What feels jarring about the Chardet song to me, we'll get there in a second, is when Charles Wallace quotes it. It's just so embarrassing. Did he quote it? Wait, is oh, that what, is that the song that they're singing at the end? Well there's this line, I think it's oh. the chorus of the song, this thing about flower of the universe, sweet child of mine. Oh, Not no. sweet child of mine. That's another song <laughs> but dear child of mine or something like Welcome that. To the jungle. Wait, that was the song? That was the Sade song? I don't remember the actual lyrics from it. Well, a, a pop song that plays. I'm not sure if it's when she and Chris Pine are hugging or not, but I think it is. And it sounded like Sade singing to me. That there's there's a there's this thing about flower of the universe, whatever. Like fine, in a song it works. Oh, I do remember. But that. there's this moment, it's quite a bit later, I think, where Meg is waking up from one of her various, you know, like swoons after being slapped around by the it. And uh, and Charles Wallace has come back to himself. And he, he quotes the song and it's just A, like how would he know the song that was playing on the soundtrack in a scene that he wasn't even in? And B, it's so, it's just so cringy that an eight-year-old kid would say flower of the universe, sweet child of mine to his sister. <laughs> I totally didn't catch that. I was wondering what those lyrics were yeah. because I didn't remember them singing a song together. Yeah. So I, was, I just thought to myself, well, this is odd, but okay, maybe I missed the part where they were singing to each other earlier. No, it's, okay. just, it's just it's just kind the of the culmination of, the of of like the yes, cloying yeah. relationship that they're shown as having, which would be so much more believable if it were more understated, right? I mean, that's just not what you say when your sister is waking up from near death. It's just weird. Okay, but we haven't gotten there yet because he's still evil. So he's evil, and there's kind of like electric bolts of oh, evil yeah. shooting down his he face. He kind of looks like Harry Potter with the lightning bolt, is what I couldn't help but keep thinking yeah. of. Yeah, and she Ava sometimes shoots him from uh, from. Down, an upward angle so that it, if she was crouching he's and makes huge. him lean. Well, he's huge, but he also looks like scary because whenever you shoot anyone yeah. from that angle, when it's like directly, very harshly, you see their chin jutting out. It's just in his eyes. It was, it was weird. His eyes turned red and it was scary. So he turns against his own dad. By They end up falling back into the golf ball, I think because of Charles Wallace's machinations. I'm not sure. But Chris Pine and, and Storm Reed, dad and daughter, plonk back down into the middle of the spherical featureless space where Calvin and the kids still are, right? And then... Somehow they end up inside the... Uh, I don't know. The mechanics were not well, super clear Well, but before they do, it's important to know that Calvin and the dad peel off, right? Calvin and the dad right. kind of tesser back to Earth without them or something. I don't know where they went. I didn't really... I mean, who... Yeah, they tesser back because Cal- or Alex, the dad, wanted to to leave what's his name behind uh charles Charles wallace Wallace behind and meg says no we can't leave him behind and which is also this that whole thing was just weird to me i would have left him behind but okay (laughs) well that that goes to a very important question about the dad's motivation that's never quite settled in the movie right like how much willfulness how much intentionality is there behind chris pines leaving his family right Right. in the first place and then also him wanting to leave charles wallace at that moment i kind of agree i'd cut my losses like i've been in outer space for four years both my kids miraculously appeared one of them is still normal the other one has become an evil demon. Right. I have a chance of getting back to home with one of them. I mean, I'm going to cut my losses and go. <laughs> he specifically says, "I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to lose both my children." But Meg says, "No, I have to stay." And so she tesers, and they, I guess, go back or whatever. And so then that leads to that giant showdown between 
evil Charles Wallace and Meg in this forest on dark. I think branches. it's basically a brain, right? It's like a giant black brain. Is this? Yeah, it sort of feels like, like you're inside, way firing. inside a brain with these kind of black neurons connecting. I mean, in the yeah. book, it's a literal brain. It is like this, like pulsing, gross brain, like on a dais in the middle of a room, and it's really disgusting the way it's described. I was sort of looking forward to the pulsating brain. Oh, I but, totally forgot. I. That I remember that it's, it's it's a really unforgettably eerie kind of image. Um, and again, it doesn't have to be a pink brain on a day as exactly like in the book. But the the unlocatability of the it was another disappointment to me. Yeah. It was sort of like when they get there, it's just a dark, branchy space. It doesn't have any. Um, there's no place that you can kind of locate the evil or address it. I guess it's being spoken through the kid Charles Wallace, but yeah, it's just kind of a mean space that they're in. Where once in a while, one of the black neuron things reaches out and kind of slaps you around. But so how does she get, how does she solve everything? What is the, the tesser? Remember, I think this is the thing that Chris Pine says right before he disappears, like, the tesser is love. Is love. I wonder how many times the word love appears in this movie. Like, it's gotta <laughs> like be. Vibranium? Like, dozens. Right? Yeah. <laughs> is it the vibranium of a wrinkle in time? It's not even a surprise that the tesseract is love or whatever, that the solution to everything is love, because that's exactly what Chris Pine says in the scene where he disappears way, way earlier in the movie, well, right? Well, it's, it's also what's implied by Mrs. Witch's earlier stuff about evil being self-doubt and blah, 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 and the fact that she wants to help Meg learn how to love herself. Like, it's it all makes sense. So, so, yeah, the way she breaks the spell on Charles Wallace is basically affirming that she loves him, even right. as he is trying to kill her with the branches of the swooping it thing. And uh, and also, this was kind of a cool moment to affirm that he loves her. Right. I mean, there's a moment where she says, and I know you love me, too, because I deserve love. And, you know, so she's kind of she's taken the Oprah mantle and decided to to affirm for herself. And I have to say that as much as that had been way overly cloyingly set up by all the zillions of affirmations of how amazing Meg is by everyone. That, to me, what did seem sort of like the turning point, right? The real turning point is where she says, I love you and you also love me. Um, So Charles comes back to himself and then they seem to have no problem getting away, right? Once he gets back to himself, they just hop, hop into the tesser zone. I guess... And the it is gone, I guess. I couldn't remember this either. And I just like assumed that they think positively and the power of love and self-love defeats the Tesser. But I can't I, I couldn't actually remember how this happens. I mean, the idea is supposed to be that she gets better at this tessering process throughout the book, you know, both because she gets more self-confidence and because, you know, she just sort of like gets practice at doing it. You know, so that last experience of going through the Tesser is kind of beautiful, right? They show her sort of smiling and yeah. stri- sort of somersaulting through these ribbony textures and things like that. And it's the, I think the idea is sort of supposed to be like, oh, now I can do it with ease and joy. And it's not just like a painful transition anymore. But again, because the previous times were so compressed and so kind of ill-explained by the movie, you don't really necessarily understand that sense. And then also the the misses, don't they give her something? They each give her something before she tessers. No, right. So that's earlier. And we forgot this. This is how she's able to like see the other dimension inside the giant golf ball is that she has those glasses that she got from I think it's Mrs. Who. She had yeah, she's given three gifts. The glasses to see behind like to see the unseen to she's given like the gift of knowing her faults, which is another okay, this is another question. Like, how does the gift of knowing her faults help her succeed? Right. Because I thought that's all she knows. 
Right. Which, is, which is why she's like so. It seems like it's why the opposite had, that right. helps her win. She's like, I embrace my faults. And maybe that's what it is. Well, I is think that, that was like, what it was supposed to be. But it's yeah, that's weird. Yeah, well, I guess the, the only scene in which you could say she's somehow embracing her faults, although calling these faults is kind of right. buying into the the its logic, is is when you see the as you said, like the the cute version of her with the ironed hair and the whatever trendy clothes, which she rejects. I mean, as another, I can't remember who, but as another critic said, it's just in a way the the climax of this movie just shows you that the it's saying that the entire universe's fate hinges on one tween girl's self esteem. You know, <laughs> right. basically, like when she realizes, like, wait, I can have natural hair and wear jeans and sneakers, then everything is right again with the universe. Right. Well, so which gets me to a question. I'm curious for you guys. Do you guys think you would have liked? I feel so not the target audience for this movie. Like I've rarely felt less the target audience for a movie in a way that's kind of interesting. But do you? guys think that you would have liked this movie when you were the right age for this movie which i would get guess is like eight to 14 or something um and dana do you think your daughter will like this movie who was was, in that age range i was trying to think about that when i was watching it she just read the book and she also read the next book in the series a wind in the door i don't know if she'll make it through the whole it's a quintet of books um she will be interested in seeing it i think she might like some things about it but I mean, maybe maybe I'm just being braggy on my kid, but I feel like she's it's going to be a little too unsubtle even for her. You know, I feel like the the self-help message is so not kid like, you know, that that the it's so um, from a world that she doesn't know or care about, which is a sort of new age affirmation world that uh, I feel like the last 20 minutes are probably would grade on her the way that they grade on me, possibly. But it might be that just the spectacle of it and the fun of riding on a lettuce leaf with Reese Witherspoon and things like that would, would make up for it. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I think that this movie will be a mild hit with kids. Like, it's a decent family movie. It's, yeah. just, it's disappointing as Ava DuVernay's big right. Disney project, but as a kind of, um, you know, tween ode to affirmation and self-love, it's not, it's not terrible. Yeah, you can do a lot worse with this genre if it had been if it there. had been directed by joe blow disney director white right. dude right i mean i think we would probably be calling it a pretty unusual if not totally successful experiment yeah. right i think i would have i think probably around the age of if i was 12 or younger i would have liked it around 13 i think i started just getting very cynical about the world so probably not then but my i have two sisters who are eight and almost 10 and i think that they will really like this movie but then again they also really like that movie sing which i heard is not good so i kind of like sing oh i'm curious to hear what your little sisters think of it and i I will show it to my daughter and see yeah yeah we should talk a little bit about representation and diversity and stuff in this movie since it's one of the big things that it tries to do and, and in some cases does do well. Um, what did you guys think of how that was handled in the movie? I mean, I kind of appreciated that it was not very foregrounded, right? I mean, the multiculturalism yeah. of the family is just a kind of a given. Yeah, I think that, you know, save for the, the hair comments, which I think you can interpret in many ways. It doesn't just have to be, you know plenty of white jewish girls i knew hated their curly hair so that's neither here nor there but i do think that it it was nice to just see that naturally not just with the family but then also just in the background like i always notice those things how many people can i spot who don't look white in in the background of any given movie and everywhere it felt just naturally and it's even camisades right (laughs) even camisades were the suburban kids there are lots of different you know, not just black, but also some who looked Asian, Latino. So it was nice to see that. And 
um, yeah, I, I, I think that I, I have faith that this movie, despite it not being, despite it being underwhelming, I think as an adult, I have faith that we've gotten to a point now where this, like this, the failure of this does not hinge on the representation of people of color going forward. I think that Ava will be fine. She will move on to the next project and, and excel there. And I would love to see her work with, you know, youth again and work within the perspective of young girls of color. I think that's a really under underseen still genre or underseen mode that we see these uh, film and TV shows in. And yeah, I mean, it was a hundred million, so it's not, it doesn't have that high of a bar. To and clear. Disney has made that like 12 times over. Well, 10, 10 times over with Black Panther. It's about to cross a billion dollars. Right, right. So I, I, I think it's I think it's a good thing for representation. And I do think that there will be a lot of kids who will see it and really like it. And that might be the most important part. Like if kids don't like it, then maybe not. But right. if they do, I think it'll be I, I would call it successful in that sense. It's too scary for what kids under eight or something. Like I found the end legitimately disturbing. Yeah, I guess the idea of your little brother being taken over by a <laughs> zombie mentality is is scary. Yeah, yeah there's so it's some kind scary of like a stuff, narrow but, age range. In the but if you could, audience, if you could but, make it through a superhero movie, you could make it through this. It's got oh, nothing sure. scarier than yeah, your average well, Marvel yeah. movie. I don't think it's much scarier than something like. Well, I barely remember Bridge to Terabithia, but. I don't know, the Narnia movies. It's actually co-written by the author of Bridge to Terabithia. That oh, guy, Jeff Stockwell. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. I, I don't think it's it's that much scarier than that, or even the Harry Potter books. And there are tons of kids, like younger young right. kids who saw that. I mean, I think I just also want to stipulate that some people, even some adult critics, really loved this movie. I think there are some people that are just going to vibrate on its frequency somehow. And, and you know, maybe there are people who are who are more sincere than us and like less. I don't know. I didn't want this movie to be the snarky, though. love. I love I mean, I love the sincerity of the movie, but yeah. it was just more the um, the overkill of that smothering. You know, if somebody tried to build up my self-esteem the way that the three misses try to build up Meg's, I would automatically distrust them because it would seem insincere. Yeah. I, to me, I think what I would identify as the two main problems of the movie are, A, what you just suggested, the kind of complete just like redundancy of the of the dialogue and the fact that it's not even just that it's like unsubtle, but that people don't talk like real humans um, because they're constantly saying the same thing that you just heard from the other character, like stating the plot, like the principal says, you really don't trust easily, do you? Which is just like, that's not something a principal would say <laughs> no, to one of his students. A You're therapist, just maybe. stating <laughs> the theme of the movie. Um, I also just on the principal for one second. I also just love that the principal wants her to get over the fact that her dad has disappeared into yeah. time space. <laughs> what kind of principal would act like that? Well, all the adults again, like the, the adults who are talking about them in Charles Wallace overhears. First of all, why would you? What teacher would do that? You never know what kid is going to be around listening to that and. I don't know. It, it made it. It did make it seem in a way that maybe the adults, not that they were evil per se, but that they just don't understand. Um, and that's nothing new. Yeah. So I think that's the one of two main problems. And then I think the second one is just it being kind of confusing, like the sense that maybe there are scenes missing 
um, just like not understanding always how one scene transitions to the next and why characters are doing what they're doing. Like, what is up with the sandwiches and who eats the sandwiches and why? <laughs> one plus one equals two. two <laughs> why does he say that? Everybody knows that if you say your addition tables, you immediately become absorbed by an evil entity. All right. Well, you guys, we haven't made any progress in understanding what happened, but it was really fun discussing it with you. I also just want to send you both to the book. It really is cool yeah, and, and lots I of fun. It. I hated it in middle school. Or were you not a sci-fi grade. fantasy person? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I still am not to some extent. I was, still, I'm not yeah. either, nor was I then. And it wasn't, I will say, it wasn't a book I treasured and wanted to read constantly and reread like many books as a kid. It wasn't my Anne of Green Gables or something, but but it was pretty great. And the second book, A Wind in the Door, is really, really fantastic. I, it would be great if somebody made a movie of that, but I sort of hope that Ava goes on to something different. Um, all right. Thank you two for coming in to spoil with me. Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Dana. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast feed. And if you like the show, you can rate it and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have suggestions for future movies or TV shows you'd like us to spoil or any other feedback to share, you can send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. For Aisha Harris and Forrest Wickman, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.